Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Brain Food Show podcast, also live streamed on YouTube. If you're listening to this live on YouTube and you want to go get the podcast version of this, please do that. Also, think about reviewing this show on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That would be awesome. I'm Simon. Join with me today, Davin. How you doing, man? I've just been on holiday, well. by the way. I'm feeling super How rested and peppy. It was good. <laughs> it was really nice. Like It was a bit late in the year, so... Some days were a bit rainy, but it was nice just in Italy for a week, which was oh, that's nice, rather lovely. Well, it's it's interesting. I was having a chat with an American friend of mine. He's like, "Oh, you're going to Italy? That's super nice." I'm like, "Yeah, it's a drive for me, isn't it? It's not <laughs> it's not that far." That's um, oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was like a, an eight hour drive, nine hour drive down, so just to the yeah. north of Italy, which was lovely. Um, how was your week? Mm-hmm. Busy, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some of us, some of us got to work around here. <laughs> I, I need like at least a week a year to recharge, I guess. So yeah, leave us a review, Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. We are having a review contest when we get to a thousand reviews on American Apple Podcasts. We're going to go through all of the podcast review sites and pick someone at random to win a thousand dollar Amazon gift card. That is not a small amount of money. And you've got a one in a thousand chance, right? Roughly. I mean, a little bit yeah. less because we'll it's... be getting the reviews from all the websites. Yeah, But that's pretty good odds. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't count on it. <laughs> I'm not really selling this now. The barrier, <laughs> don't count on it. <laughs> the barrier for entry is very small. You yes. literally just have to leave a review and say what you think of the podcast. What are we talking about today? What is the... We're talking about two practical jokes of these of the uh, the greatest of the century variety. Uh, one is, as you know, often called the greatest of the 19th century. And then the other is uh, the, of the 20th century. But you know, that's relative. Wait, the one of consider. the 19th century isn't. Yeah, like that one is a lock in for the best. Yeah. 20th century, there was a lot of shenanigans going down. Yeah, there's a, well, you know, this, they're both really good. That's the point. 20th century, the most violent century and also the one with the best practical jokes. Yeah, yeah. Should we uh, start with, I looked at the, I looked over the script for today. <laughs> that quick fact, because normally uh, for those who aren't familiar, yeah. normally we'll do like quick facts. Word from our sponsors, main content. Dude, this quick fact is like half the episode. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like a good way to split it up uh, in, this, in this case. I like it. I like it. Right. Entertain me. Quick fact. All right. so, Sorry, I'm way overexcited today. I'm like, <laughs> it's Monday morning. I'm keen to be back at work. Yeah, so the year is 1809. It's November 27th. And future famed English author Theodore Hook, who's he's only 22 years old right now, so he's not he's not actually famous yet. He's just a well-to-do uh, young man and also a future famed architect and writer, 23-year-old Samuel Beasley. So they're just a couple friends, you know, they're quite wealthy, you know, got, got nothing better to do with their time. And they're walking along one day and they see 54 Berners Street, London, and uh, and they... Uh, I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. So they're walking along 54 Berners Street, London, and they look and they're just, they're just like, all right, here's a bet we're going to do. So Hook turns to Beasley and he says, I will make that house the most talked about house in all of London within a week. So the, the news accounts, so who's, whose house is this? So the news accounts of the day, for instance, the Edinburgh Annual Register notes it's a, a one Mrs. Tottenham, a lady of fortune is how they describe her. She's also a widow. Other, other accounts say she was a widow Bloody of some God. sort. I feel like Lady of Fortune is a very 19th century thing. No one would be described yeah. as a man of fortune today. Like yeah, Jeff was, Bezos, it, man of fortune. Yeah, it was, a, it was a wealthy part of town, which is, which is key to, to the events that would, that would come to pass here. So where was it, they, did they, you say? It was, it was November 27th, 1809. Yeah. And so on the morning of question, it's, a, it's 5 a.m. 
they're they're across the street now in a little house across the street because yeah. you know they want to they want to watch the fun. So first first thing happens is a chimney sweep arrives at fifty four Burner Street, uh, and you know knocks and the the maid answers and is like, no, we didn't we didn't request a chimney sweep. And then uh, shortly thereafter, just a few minutes later, twelve more chimney sweeps arrive and they too are turned away. And then next up comes a coal delivery, like a whole wagon load of coal showing yeah. up. And uh, and they too is like, nope, we, we didn't we didn't ask for that. It's like the so 12 days thanks. of Christmas. Yeah, thanks anyway. So they get turned away. And then shortly after that, a cartload of furniture arrives and uh, they too get turned away. And then a <laughs> coffin for Mrs. Tottenham arrives and they get turned away. And then several cake makers arrive with giant wedding cakes. <laughs> And they also were not ordered. And then several other chefs uh, comprising, they ordered uh, 2,500 raspberry tarts is what they brought combined between them. And they also get turned away. And following this is just doctors, lawyers, gardeners, fishmongers, dentists, grocers, priests, couch makers, carpet manufacturers, wig makers, coach makers, curiosity dealers, opticians, brewers, and shoemakers, among many, many others, (laughs) come calling at her door that morning bringing large orders of their various wares or, you know, services to to attend to Mrs. Tottenham. And of course, she didn't order any of them. And then the dignitaries start arriving, including the governor of the Bank of England, the Duke of York, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the mayor of London, Lord Chief Justice, several cabinet ministers and the chairman of the East India Company. Good Lord. It seems that it's yeah. only missing the queen or the king, I yeah. suppose, back then. Yeah. Yeah. And so by midday, of course, this this is causing quite the traffic jam. Uh, the roads all around that area are are quite uh, stacked with with carts and all this sort of things. And then, of course, this brings gawkers to come look like what's going on here. Uh, and so it's just crowding. <laughs> and so we have a little note from this uh, describing it in the Edinburgh Annual Register account. Such crowds collected at length as to render the street impassable. Wagons laden with coal from the Paddington wharfs, upholsterers, goods in cartloads, organs, pianofortes, linen, jewellery, and every other description of furniture was lodged as near as possible to the door of number 54 with anxious tradespeople and a laughing mob. I would yeah. not leave my stuff there. I, I, no. They, they no, want to get paid first. <laughs> yeah, well, that's part of the problem, too. Nobody's getting paid and they're all bringing their wares and so they're quite upset about it. Uh, and then, uh, so on the note of the the dozen the pianos, it turns out it was a full dozen piano fortes were attempted to be delivered uh, there to Mrs. Tottenham's house that day. Uh, and then, of course, at this point, there's there's quite the, the the ruckus going on. So the police get called to try to impose some order on everything. And uh, again, uh, the Edinburgh account here says uh, the first thing witnessed by the officers was six stout men bearing an organ surrounding by wine porters with permits barbers with wigs mantau makers I don't know what a mantau is but anyway with band I don't boxes, know what that is either some sort of <laughs> I don't know <laughs> could be anything with this list of stuff uh, band boxes opticians and the various articles of trade and such was the pressure of tradespeople who had been duped that at four o'clock all were still in confusion. Every officer that could be mustered was enlisted to disperse the people, and they were placed in the corner of Burner Street to prevent tradespeople from advancing towards the house with goods. I looked it up while I was reading that. Really? Uh, just because, <laughs> you know, that's the sort of skill levels that I bring to this podcast. It's some sort of mm-hmm. Chinese bun. Unless it's, I mean, oh. <laughs> that seems really unlikely for 19th yeah, century. That's weird. 
Is this in Edinburgh? Yeah, this is in Edinburgh. Right? No, no, this is in London. That was the Edinburgh account. So this this was reported all over all over the country and uh, okay. know, Scotland and everywhere. It was quite quite a, a thing. Uh, there was even a couple of years later. There was like plays based on the thing that were made and stuff in London. Uh, so all the while, Hook and Beasley are just sitting across the way, <laughs> uh, just enjoying the show, you know. And so this, so how how and why there? Uh, so how, how did he do this? So first, as to the why, I kind of alluded to it at the beginning, but in 1843 edition of the Quarterly Review, we get revealed by uh, J.G. Lockhart. So he he noted that, that that the two were just walking down the street, and uh, and Hook turned to Beasley, stating, "I'll lay you a guinea that in one week that nice modest dwelling shall be the most famous in all London." Yeah, and so this Hook Hook used to do stuff like this all the time, but like lesser scale so one of the one of the things he used to like to do is to bet his friends like they'd just be walking along and he'd point at the house and be like i bet you i can get invited to dinner at that house right now um and then he would just like go up and just random house knock on the door and then try to you know talk talk his way into getting invited to dinner but as time. much as this as much as this sucks for all of the people who have you know deliver the pianos and all the yeah. food's gonna go off so that's probably worse yeah, like yeah. the piano guys can at least yeah. get the pianos back yeah i mean as much as this kind of sucks for them Hook does sound like a bit of a legend. <laughs> <laughs> right? He's only 22 at this time. So this brings us to how. How did he actually do it? So apparently, he enlisted the aid of a couple friends. And according to his biographer, R.H. Dalton Barham, in 1849, he notes that uh, there was a, apparently a Mr. H, which is speculated to be Hook's close friend, Henry Higginson, and then a Mrs. Blank. It's not listed, but that's it just noted as a celebrated actress at the time, but no, not anymore is known which one. But so they get together and they write 4,000 letters to then set out and they send out to the various entities around London. Um, so most of these letters, you know, been lost. Nobody knows what they said, but there are a few examples that got uh, turned into newspapers and stuff that uh, were then reported. So here's a couple. Mrs. Tottenham requests Mr. Blank will call upon her at two tomorrow as she wishes to consult him about the sale of an estate, 54 Burner Street, Monday. Uh, another reads, Mrs. Tottenham requests that a post-chase, post-chase, I'm not sure on the pronunciation on that one, and four may be at her house at two tomorrow to convey her to the first stage towards Bath, 54 Burner Street, Monday. Oh, so some sort of transport. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Tottenham begs the Honorable Mr. Blank will be good enough to give her a call at two tomorrow as Mrs. D is desirous of speaking to him on business of importance. 54 Burner Street, Monday. See, and so then uh, as, as with regards to some of the letters to like the mayor of London and stuff, so what, what do they say to them? So most pretty much all of these letters are lost. But we do have some account, like for instance, the uh, again in the Edinburgh Annual Register kind of uh, notes the mayor's account of what happened here. Says... About this time, the Lord Mayor arrived in his carriage, but his lordship's stay was short as he was driven to Marlborough Street Police Office. At the office, his lordship informs the sitting magistrate that he had received a note purporting to have come from Mrs. T, which stated that she had been summoned to appear before him, but that she was confined to her room by sickness and requested his lordship would do her the favor to call on her. This is insanely elaborate. There's 4,000 of these? Yeah, and they, I mean, the ones to the merchants was, you know, that's kind of easy, just requesting wares and stuff. But yeah, to convince some of these more impressive people. So like another one we have a, an account from is the governor of the Bank of England. So what they did there is they just uh, wrote that Mrs. Tottenham, you know, she's old and she's, you know, wealthy and she was she would like to give a sizable endowment to the bank. Uh, and so she would like the governor to call on her at, at her house so she could discuss the matter. And, you know, so of course he shows up. So there's a bunch of stuff like this. That the, the, the getting the people to come is really the, I think the, uh, the the important people to come is the impressive part. But so 
eventually the crowds, of course, they, they dissipate late in the evening. And then uh, this is when Hook and Beasley supposedly emerge and Beasley gives them his guinea and they just, you know, walk off. And so initially, of course, this was like a big deal. It was like major news and there was, you know, the police were called in. There was lots of goods destroyed, like not just the, the you know, perishable goods, like some stuff were just, you know, destroyed in the process with all the crowds and everything. And so, that they, you know, the, the legal authorities were wanting to get involved and like, who did this? Someone's going to, you know, jail or getting fined or something for this. And so nobody knew at first, there was just a lot of angry merchants who wanted it. And so Hook, as for Hook, he immediately left town directly thereafter for a couple of weeks, claiming his health was poor to his friends. And a lot of his friends kind of, you know, the one that weren't in the know, they kind of suspected, yeah, this seems like his thing. And then he, all of a sudden he up and leaves town directly after and then so, but a couple of years later, rumors were swirling publicly. Um, so the, the, that Hook was the one behind it. And so on uh, November 1st, 1812 edition of the Satirist, uh, there was uh, the, the first noted instance of this where it was quoted, the young writer was, uh, to quote it, grievously suspected of the Burners Street hoax. And then Hook himself, he didn't admit to it for a couple decades later until ni- or 1835, in which he has, a, he has this uh, book that he wrote called The Gilbert Gurney, which is sort of semi-autobiographical where he has actually um he kind of declares this with one of the characters stating there's nothing like fun what else made the effect in burner street i am the man i did it sent a lord mayor in state to release impressed seamen philosophers and sages to look at children with two heads a piece piano fortes by dozen and coal wagons by scores two thousand five hundred raspberry tarts from half a hundred pastry cooks a squad of surgeons a battalion of physicians a legion of apothecaries lovers to see sweethearts, ladies to find lovers, upholsterers to furnish houses and architects to build them, gigs, dog carts and glass coaches, enough to convey half the freeholders of Middlesex to Brentford. Nay, I dispatched even royalty itself on an errand to a respectable widow lady whose concourse of visitors by my special invitation choked up the great avenues of London and found employment for half the police of the metropolis. Yeah, and so once he actually came out that he uh, he was the guy who did it, he actually, I assume, like so much time had passed, nobody cared anymore. He didn't, and he was famous at the time, so he didn't get in trouble at this point. And, you know, yeah. now, now um, there was afterwards, so there was uh, several other people who tried to do similar things, not quite, never quite achieving the same scale. And before that, this had been like a, a prank that some people would do, but you'd just do it like on a small scale. You might just like order a piano or something, and it's like, oh, piano's at the door, and that's funny. But he just like took it to, you know, or, you know, sending out these 4,000 letters to sort of like turn it up to 11 there for the hoax. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's uh, this this first 19th century practical joke that's quite funny. And now we'll get I like into it the a 20th century momentarily. And before we get into that, everybody, I want to give a quick plug to today's fantastic sponsor, Blinkist, the first 100 people who go over to Blinkist.com forward slash The Brain Food Show are going to get to try Blinkist for free. Uh, and if you do want to get full membership, our, our link, Blinkist.com forward slash The Brain Food Show, is going to get you 25% off. So what exactly is Blinkist? Well, Blinkist is great for busy people like me. I'm a pretty busy person, even though I was on holiday last week. Generally, I'm pretty busy. I have a pretty busy schedule. While on holiday, I was reading a book called Sapiens uh, by a chap called... <laughs> Sorry if the, I, about the pronunciation on his name. Yuval Noah Harari, maybe? Uh, it's a great book. It's a super famous book. I'm, you've probably heard of it. It's, uh, it's really good. Now, normally... I don't have time to read like full books. I listen to audiobooks occasionally. Mostly, what I do is I jump into Blinkist, which offers 15-minute summaries of books, just kind of getting the 
the major points, the most important stuff out of them. And they do these audio. Can you see that? Is that going to adjust? They do these. Uh, this is actually the text version. So here there's like a text version and it calls them blinks. And in there, there's just the most crucial information. You can also listen to it if you want. Let's see if I can get that to play. Yuval Noah Harari. Ah. <laughs> It even pronounces his name for me. Uh, so let's just jump ahead and it'll have like these uh, blinks. There's 13, there's 13 blinks in this book. And then it sounds something like this. So although not the first humans, Homo sapiens came to replace. Basically, it's all the key information for, from that book. I've, you know, I've read a lot of books uh, and I feel a problem with me as I often forget what was in them. So I find uh, basically Blinkist is all the notes you wish you had from every book that you read. Uh, it's it's all the best key insights. It's really great. First 100 people get to try it for free and we'll get 25% off the full membership at Blinkist.com forward slash The Brain Food Show. Please do go check it out. It also supports the show. It's a fantastic app. Uh, yeah. Just go download it, and let's get back to the show. So normally, if you're mm -hmm. like a practical jokester, you know, and you die, your practical mm -hmm. joke, you're done. You can't, you can't do more practical jokes, you're dead. But, you know, some people, they rise above, you know, rise above the occasion, and they, they continue to do so from beyond the grave. And that is the subject of today, is the 1930s, one that Charles Vance Miller uh, did just this very thing. And so Charles Vance Miller, who, who was he? So he was born in Canada, a Canadian in 1853. And so he was excelled at pretty much everything. Super genius, uh, you know, near perfect marks at university. He was, you know, then he eventually, he settles on law, but on the side, he does investing and he ended up being quite incredibly wealthy, you know, multimillionaire in his lifetime. And, but his, 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 his true passion was for practical jokes. <laughs> and it, particularly, I didn't include a lot of the stuff he did. Like, I mean, he, he used to do stuff like he would like accidentally drop like a, you know, money, like cash, and then just try to see, like, he'd just stand there like he didn't do it. And then try to see if, you know, people would try to sneak and like grab it without him noticing, you know, and he just, <laughs> this sort of, he did stuff like this. And then, so this, this was like a, a, a 20th century YouTuber. Yeah. He kind of had this thing. It was like, every man has his price. So these were like the practical jokes. He liked <laughs> to see like how far he could push people. Uh, yeah. to do stuff that he knew they didn't want to do, but for, you know. And so this this is kind of, uh, this brings us to October 31st, 1926, when uh, Miller, he dies of a heart attack on Halloween, at that, that Halloween, 1926. And so he's 73 years old at this time. And so he's a lifelong bachelor. He didn't really have, you know, he had no close family or anything, bunch of friends, but, you know, that was it. He just had like distant relations that he didn't really know. And so he, you know, what does he do with his money? And so he he decided to just bequeath it to people for humorous means. So to begin with, well, I'll just give a few examples here to start before we get to the main part. So first, uh, Miller bequeaths for their lifetime. He's not actually giving it to them, but they can use it for their lifetime. So they, the point of this is that they can't sell it. Uh, so he gives his Jamaican summer house to three lawyers, one T.F. Galt, J.D. Montgomery, and James Newerson. And you think, you know, this is like a generous gift. He's letting them use his summer house. They can just, you know, do that, you know. But it turns out, these three men loathe each other like they absolutely hate each other and so it's just he was just his way of forcing them to if they want to use the place they got to get along enough to manage it during their lifetimes and then once they die uh, then he he noted uh, he noted that the house would be sold and then here's a little quote for you to read uh, upon the death of the last survivor of them i direct my executors to sell the same and to give the proceeds to the council of the city of kingston jamaica for distribution among the poor of the city yeah so that's nice you know the charity yeah. eventually but in the meantime these three men who hate each other have to get along enough to manage this house together so then he goes to the uh so he bequeaths shares in his he's so you know he invested in a lot of stuff and he had shares in the catholic owned 
O'Keefe Brewery. And so he gave these shares to the temperate supporting Protestant ministers, as long uh, with the stipulation that they yeah, couldn't have them. Be a catch. <laughs> they couldn't have them unless they took part in the management of the Catholic brewery, uh, just to see, you know, if they would do it. And so similarly, uh, he left shares of the Kenilworth Jockey Club to three men. Uh, the two most notable here were Reverend Samuel D. Chown and Judge W. E. Rainey, both of whom who were advocates against horse racing and gambling. And so, but. Again, the stipulation here was in order to claim their shares, they actually had to become a member of the club. And so they had to actually go sign up, become a member of the, and then they would get their shares. And so just to see if they would do it for the money. And so they did. And the the two men in question, they sold their shares for um, $1,500, which is about $27,000 each is what they got. But they did, they had to sign up, become members uh, to, to, in order to get it just to see if they would do it. So they did. And then, you know, beyond this, he did leave money to like his housekeeper and some of his friends and stuff like that. Without all that, but stipulations. Yeah. But the most significant part of this, the vast majority of his money at this time, he he stipulates in the ninth clause of his will. All the rest and residue of my property, wherever so situate, I give, devise, and bequeath onto my executors and trustees, named below in trust, to convert into money as they deem advisable, invest all the money until the expiration of nine years from my death, and then call in and convert it all into money. And at the expiration of 10 years from my... Jesus, you can tell he's a lawyer, can't you? (laughs) At death, they give it all... And its accumulations to the mother who has, since my death, given birth in Toronto to the greatest number of children as shown by the registrations under the Vital Statistics Act. If one or more mothers have equal highest number of registrations under said act to divide the said monies and accumulations equally between them. Wait. So he's like basically we'll give all the money to the woman who has the most kids yeah in in that span who who can pop out the most babies in this span and you get a lot of money and uh and we'll get into how much uh shortly but but you you say like he wrote it like a lawyer but this was important because he knew he knew that this would be challenged like oh, his yeah, distant relations down <laughs> his distant relations are going to come out of the woodworks he was wealthy and they, they're going to want the money and so they did challenge the will not only that the canadian government challenged the will to try to get the money donated to i think it was the university of toronto uh, and they it went all the way to the canadian like supreme court or whatever where they had to rule on this and and so he he locked it down and again his his actually the person the executor of his will which was um, a fellow lawyer friend of his actually thought it was a joke when they when he first found it so he he quipped on that I found some writing in the form of a will but it's not a will it's a joke we're searching for the actual will now but it wasn't a joke. <laughs> no, that was the that will was, wasn't it yeah. that was the real will so he you know he's a lawyer so he knew how to how to lock it down to make sure that it, it couldn't be you know that it would actually be followed through on all this stuff and so one of the things he actually opened it with the line This will is necessarily uncommon and capricious because I have no dependents or near relations and no duty rests upon me to leave any property at my death. And what I do leave is proof of my folly in gathering and retaining more than I require in my lifetime. Yeah, so the Canadian Supreme Court ended up there like, yep, this is a valid will after it gets all all up there. And uh, the the Justice Middleton, who would actually, he would add some stipulations to some of the things that actually weren't in the will, uh, which we'll mention shortly. But but yeah, he deemed it legally sound. It's all good. So it it gets executed. And so then there's this matter of, okay, what about this? Uh, You know, they got to manage how this, the the woman who pops out the most babies in this span, like how do they decide and all that. So Justice Middleton, he adds some stuff. One thing uh, he thought, he stated there had to be in it for his his estimation a legitimate birth and so this for him he just meant they had to be married like no no births out of out of wedlock 
uh, would count, which wasn't in the original will. Uh, And so, and uh, also he said that it had to be, couldn't stillbirth and miscarriages didn't count for whatever reason he wanted that. I don't know. So Justice Middleton, he, on all of this, he had the following to say. I'm kind of, just before we get into it, I'm kind of surprised that he does this because the guy was really, really specific. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was. So, I mean, he didn't. And we'll get into why he probably did this. And so, yeah, the, he, he wouldn't have cared about like the stipulations. And actually, I think he would have disagreed with these, these, uh, the, these stipulations being added in the first place. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, anyway, he said, uh, the justice, that is, he said, I think that a child is live born when it proceeds entirely from the mother and becomes a separate living person. This is generally evidenced by the child establishing an independent blood circulation and its ability to breathe. A child born dead is not, in truth, a child's. It was that which might have been a child. One cannot but recall the utterances of the witches in Macbeth, who assured Macbeth that he need fear none of women born, and Macbeth's disappointment when he found that they lied to the sense while keeping promise to the ear. And he faced Macduff, who was from his mother's womb untimely ripped. Yeah, so these stipulations in place, there was, you know, this news accounts were around. And so at first, this isn't big news, but then it got bolstered with the, the Canadian government actually tried to nullify the will, as mentioned, to give it to the University of Toronto. They wanted to give the, the sum. Um, but then, you know, then it started, this was, it started to be like a major story as the, as the decade passed, where it was coming to the point where it was going to be paid out. And so newspapers were actually reporting on women, like, you know, the women who were kind of the, the leading contenders at the time, uh, like almost like it was a sporting event kind of thing. And there was the there was a spree of pregnancies leading up to that the the end point with some of these women who were close uh, and it was called they they called it the great stork race so it wasn't actually all like like for some of these women like this was the great depression right and so for some of them this was like you know the way to support their families like if they get like if you were already if you're already near the thing if you could just pop out like one more baby you could maybe win this this huge prize yeah but you're already if you don't win you're really you're really screwed. Yeah. Oh, I suppose um, this was also a time where children were more of an economic input than a burden. Yeah. Right. Well, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not in the city. It's but yeah, not, so not good for most people. So how much was what was this estate? So this was the Great Depression. You might think he would have lost a lot of his money, and uh, he might have. He did lose some on some of his investments, but there was actually one investment that he made that really kind of bolstered it and kind of made it come out uh, in the positive. And so he paid two dollars, just two dollars. A bit, which is about $30 today for this little, little tiny piece of land that was near, uh, near Detroit, kind of on the border. And it turns out this land ends up getting sold to be used for the Detroit Windsor Tunnel, which is today the second most traffic crossing between uh, Canada and US. And so the $2 investment for this land ended up being selling for $100,000, which is about $1.8 million today in 1936. Uh, so that ended up Boy. helping the rest. How did he know? <laughs> I mean, he didn't. He just bought this land. I mean, presume. Well, maybe. Hang on, hang on. If I'm like, if I buy a tiny piece of land in this really obscure location, and a few years later it becomes the main crossing point between two countries, whoever looks into that insider trading stuff is going to be looking into me. <laughs> well, but he was he was dead at the time it was sold, so like you know, it had been. Well, yeah, right, so. but he he might have heard from some guy on the inside, like, yeah, we're thinking about building a tunnel there. In, yeah, you know, maybe before he died or something. Future. Yeah, that seems a little bit suspicious. It does. Either way, either way. So his entire estate, what was left after the other stuff got divvied out, was about $750,000, even despite the Great Depression. Uh, and that's about $13.2 million today, which was due to be liquidated and handed out to the woman who could who had given birth to the most babies. 
So who actually won the remains? So it turns out there was two dozen women initially claimed that to to have it. And uh, only of these ones, eight were initially deemed eligible. The rest were dismissed oh for because of the judge's stipulations, uh, which were not in the, the original. And then finally, four of them were ultimately agreed to have fulfilled all the stipulations uh, of everything that had been added. And, and you know, once the all the background stuff was looked into. And uh, so, yeah, the women were Annie Smith, Kathleen Nagel, Lucy Timlick, and Isabel McLean, all of whom had given birth to nine children in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dude. So, so there was the, the so they each got $125,000, so about $2.2 million today. And the, and the rest, there was two other women, uh, Pauline Clark and Lillian Kenny. And so they were deemed in, ineligible. Oh, because so Clark had given birth to five of the 10 children, technically out of wedlock, but she actually lived with the guy. She just never bothered to get divorced to the guy she was with before that she had the other five. So she just went and lived with this new guy. And so had she gotten divorced and they got remarried, Ah, and this so they is, could have it could have been different husbands, but as long as they were married, it was okay. Yeah, but but because she didn't, and because the judges added this stipulation, ah. now, cons- the important here is she had ten children, not nine. She would have beaten all of these other women, and she would have gotten the full prize for herself the the thirteen point two million yeah. the total. And that sucks. But she knew about the stipulation. Yeah, yeah, but so she but. Because she was the stipulation, she was kind of disqualified, but she did have an argument like she could bring a law, a law case against this because, look, it's not in the will. It doesn't say these stipulations. That's something the judge added later. Uh, so she could actually have a good case to then, you know, sue. Where's she going to gonna take it to? Price. Wasn't the case, wasn't the justice, the Supreme Court who decided the stipulation? Well, I think the judge decided the stipulation. The Supreme Court just decided that the will was legitimate. Right. Ah. So they added. So she had she had a case. She had a case, but they ended up settling with her to uh, twelve uh, twelve thousand five $220,000 a day if she would just agree not to not to pursue the matter. Okay, like this is all good. That's a lot of money, but that's like 22 grand a child in yeah, today's yeah. money. Yeah, so... Does that yeah, even pay for college? <laughs> yeah, and the other woman, the other woman also, she would have uh, been one of the winners, but she actually had a stillborn uh, child, so... Uh, okay. that she was deemed and again she could have brought a case because it wasn't in the initial thing uh so they also gave her twelve thousand five hundred dollars well that's right um, this is when 1940s did you say 30s 1930s. 30s so all of these women who had the nine children in 10 years they got to pretty much have a perfect run yeah <laughs> yeah especially like the one who had born 10. Child and you're out the, yeah and that's insane to have that many and the, the woman who had 10 10 that's crazy that's insane how many months yeah. does that leave you to spare? <laughs> Almost none. And, and your body just has to get right back on it. Like, it doesn't always happen. So, yeah. So, why did Miller do this in the first place? And it turns out Miller, he was a lifelong bachelor. And he, he, uh, he definitely had a strong opinion about the... So, at the time, birth control, like, doctors couldn't, couldn't even talk about it. Like, you couldn't talk to the, to the women about, like, how could you, you know, make sure you don't get pregnant? Like, this wasn't even a thing that could be discussed, let alone actually issue... Because they did have various forms of birth control... And you, you couldn't even talk about it. Like their doctor couldn't even talk. It was against the law to even talk about it to the women. And so this Crazy. Miller was, he thought this was stupid. And so this was sort of to, you know, garner discussion was what he thought he was going for. But how ridiculous it is. Like, look, they just keep, you know, popping out the babies. If we don't have some form of birth control they can use. Uh, so this thought is maybe what he was going for to sort of uh, get some commentary going on the news or whatever. But um, well, here we are in 2019 talking about it. He was successful. Yeah. Yeah, and this this did get brought brought up in the in the uh, in the aftermath. And one of the winners, actually, Lucy Timlick, did she did take a moment to note to the press. I think birth control is a wonderful thing. 
and further noted, I am sorry in one way that birth control information wasn't available years ago. I know mothers who would have welcomed such knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, that conversation continues all these years later. Yeah, and that is the episode today I was going to include. There was some there was some funny stuff about, uh, so there's uh, Other Beyond the Grave, just I'll just say real briefly. Uh, so one of them, this guy, I mean, it's not funny, it's it, it's like awful, but it was, I think it was Germany. <laughs> oh God, how bad's it going to be? <laughs> no, it's bad. Uh, so he, he has his will. In his will, he states that he wants his coffin put in this upper floor room in his house, right? And he wants his, you know, the funeral. They want everyone gather, you know, celebrate my life. And it turns out he had weakened the floorboards in that room so that when the crowd gathered there, it would collapse and it killed many of the people who came to his funeral. (laughs) Presumably he hated his family or friends or whatever. But yeah, so that was a thing. Little joke from the uh, beyond the grave. And then there was another one. I wish I would have written this one down, uh, the name of the guy, but he, um, he basically stipulated in his will, I believe his wife couldn't inherit the money. He was a poet. She couldn't inherit the money until she got married again. And he had the quote was because I want at least someone to be sorry I died. That's depressing. Well, so, so the guy who marries yeah, his yeah, wife yeah. is sorry he died. Yeah, yeah. These are very yeah. morbid. Um, they are. There was a bunch of them like that. But yeah, again, a lot of them were kind of morbid. So I was like, whatever, we'll stop there for the day. So that's, that's a, a short episode today. But yeah, I liked it. I liked it. I like yeah. practical jokes in general. Mm-hmm. I used to... Yeah, I once I once convinced my sister that she'd won the lottery, which was probably more of a mean practical joke <laughs> than I intended it to be. She was, it was, I feel a bit embarrassed about this these days. It was like, <laughs> I thought it was really clever as like a, a, a 13, 14 year old tricking my sister who's a couple of years younger than me. I like, I printed a letter because it was, I think it, we just got like a color printer at home. So it was like inkjet printing was a, you know, not, it wasn't, you know, like today completely ubiquitous. So I printed one, I put the national lottery's letterhead on there. I made up some story about how there was a surplus in the lottery funds and they were just giving it away to people at postcodes in the UK. And it was only, <laughs> I made it realistic. So I was only like, it was only like 250 grand rather than like, you know, a hundred million or something. And then I printed an envelope with like, you know, uh, is it called postmarking where you fake like the, uh, the, not fake, but you know, companies will send it out. They won't stick a stamp on there. They'll print like a mm-hmm. something on it mm-hmm. to show that it like this. So I printed this onto the envelope. I printed the logo on it and I put it in with the day's mail. And then at breakfast, (laughs) I was talking about how I read in the paper that the lottery was giving away like prizes because this is like quite an elaborate, elaborate. Yeah, it was really elaborate and it was really mean and I felt bad about it now. (laughs) But yeah, um, she got excited. Then my parents got excited because I realized it was a bit too good. And then I had to tell them that it wasn't real. (laughs) There was a check in there and everything, like a fake check that I printed out. Um, yeah, that was, yeah. Well, listen, it's not as bad as the guy who killed his family by putting no, the, the coffin on the top floor. I'll take yeah. comfort in that. This has been the Brain Food Show. Uh, I've been Simon. That's been David. We'll be back real soon with another episode. For now, please do leave us a review. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addicts, wherever you get your show, that would be great. When we get to a thousand reviews on Apple Podcasts, we're going to go through and pick a winner of a thousand dollar Amazon gift card to celebrate that milestone. So please do that. Obviously, you're not listening to this podcast, or maybe you are. It depends if you're watching this live or not, or getting it later. Either way, grab the podcast if you like. It's an easier way to consume this show. And if you're watching the live version, it's certainly a bit tidier, like the little mistakes where I read the quotes wrong. We slice Mm -hmm. all that out so it's neat and tidy. Anything you want to add before we wrap it up today? Yeah, brainfood.fm is where people can go if they want to go check out the podcast and all the links. Dude, I never plug the website. 
and we've got such yeah. a good domain, which we paid yeah. a bunch of money for. Oh, so. A lot of money for. <laughs> <laughs> Should occasionally mention that. One of our investments. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we'll be back real soon. No one would be described as a man of fortune today. Like Jeff Bezos, man of fortune.